This afternoon we'll be continuing uh, in our series in the book of Hebrews. Uh, We are in the uh, last lap, so to speak, uh, of our walk through the book. Uh, Today we're going to be focusing in on verses 20 and 21, uh, which is also a classic, uh, what is used quite often as a benediction, which we have used before as well. Before we continue, let's go ahead and hear once again from Hebrews chapter 13. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money. And be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great sh- the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we have heard your word. We ask that it uh, may do by your spirit, your good work in us through your word. We ask that you would uh, plant it and bring it to great deep root within us that we, be, we may be molded and formed by it, pointed to Jesus Christ. Would you increase and strengthen our faith? We pray you would guide this preacher, that he might faithfully declare your truth, such that what he declares would be your word. 
And we ask that you would help him to be chained, that you would chain him to your word, that he would freely declare that truth with clarity, with accuracy, with understanding. We pray, O Lord, that you would minister in each of us according to what we need. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to the end of the book of Hebrews, our author now gives a benedictory address, which is he simply gives a word of blessing to them, a good word, and he's expressing a desire to them. Think about the things that we have dealt with in this chapter and in the book as a whole. Thinking of the fact that he has expounded upon the greatness of Jesus Christ in comparison to everything else as most likely Hebrew Christians that they have believed before and that the, and everything in the old covenant and how Christ has fulfilled that all and how even for us not having a Hebrew background have many things that we have looked to as our hope and as our joy, as our comfort, as our assurance. Christ is greater than all of those. He is the superior sacrifice, the great high priest on our behalf who has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And the call for us is to hold on to him by faith. And in holding on to him by faith, we have endurance. And in that endurance and in that holding on to him, we grow. And we've been looking at the various different ways in which the author of the book of Hebrews uh, exhorts growth, starting with looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith looking to our Father who even in His discipline of us is greatly caring for us and loving towards us and assures us of His grace and His kindness that is to us in Jesus Christ. Looking to the fact that there's a strong one another aspect to to the Christian life, let brotherly love continue, of welcoming outsiders, of living in solidarity, in our minds, in our hearts, in our prayers with those who are suffering for the sake of the gospel, honoring marriage, submitting to our leaders, being content with what the Lord has given us, and and in so doing also being generous with that which God has given us, remembering Christ, the one who lived and died and rose from the dead, is still that same Christ. He has not changed His death once for all, His resurrection once for all is still effective for us. And thus we are in a far better place than we could ever imagine, even though in comparison to human and to conventional standards of conventional wisdom, we appear to be oftentimes on the short end of the stick. But we are in a far better place having able to eat from that which those outside of Christ cannot eat, have no right to. And now in closing, he begins with a prayer, uh, an expression of what he is praying. What we have here is saying, expressing what he desires for them, and in so doing, is expressing how he prays for them and expresses, this is what I wish for to happen with you. And that is, he's expressing, this, expressing once again the sufficiency of what they have and what we have. The one who is the greater than for all of life and for all of godliness. 
we see in this, first of all, that there's an actor in this. This actor is not you, it is not me, it's not even the author of this epistle. The actor is the God of peace. We also see those who are acted upon. That is the patience. Those who are the, the one who is the patient or those who are the patients. And that is us. The readers and us. We also see what he does and what it is he acts. Specifically that the equipping of us for the equipping of us to do his will. To do the good works he has laid out for us. To do his will. And how he does these things. The means by which he does them in us. All of those are laid out. Things like by the blood of the eternal covenant. Working in us what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. And the purpose of his actions. Which has to do with his glory. Has to do with glory unto the triune God. That in him doing good things for us he is glorifying himself. Honoring himself. And so first of all, the thing that we see is once again, he's given all these exhortations saying these things, let them be true of you. And now he's saying, this is how it is true of you, is that the God of peace, the one doing the act, the acting would do this good work in you. Who is the actor in his in God's people becoming more like Christ growing in the likeness of Christ, growing in grace and knowledge, growing in the outworking of his sanctifying work in us. Who is the actor in that? Well, Christians, while we are the ones who live, are called upon to live in a certain way, God is the one who is the actor. He is the one who is acting in us. We'll talk more about that in Uh, just a little bit in terms of all the various different implications of that. But it is this God God who is at work in us. But he's identified here in particular as the God of peace. This is uh, something that uh, especially the Apostle Paul will refer to God in a number of ways as the God of peace, the God who has brought peace. What does this tell us about this God who is working in us, our God? The one true God with what we heard earlier in the service when it said, you shall have no other gods before me. This is the one, the God of peace, who has made peace with us through our Lord Jesus Christ. We look at the history of humanity And in the history of humanity, there is much conflict and there are oftentimes conflict and wars between different countries and different peoples. And one of the things that happens is one of the warring parties wishes to do something and to gain the upper hand. So the other warring party will seek peace, will pursue peace and propose and ask for a peace. I've been reading a tome, well, not reading so much, I don't have time to uh, do much reading of fiction and non-theological stuff, so I'm listening to it, Uh, but a tome called The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, it's just like this thick of a book. 
and listening to it and the ways to talk about how the desire for uh, trying to do things so someone would pursue peace. And we needed peace with God. We were, we were at enmity with God. And God sought peace. God brought reconciliation. He, in sending his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the human nature, the, the divine nature and the human nature in the person of Jesus Christ, being united without division or confusion, sued for peace. He sued for peace. Not in the sense of going to court and saying, I'm, I'm serving you papers, but he pursued peace with us. He took the initiative in sending Jesus for the purpose of our redemption. And not because we merited it or because, but because he, it is in his character to show grace to those whom he will show grace. This is the one who made peace with us through our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of peace. We've been reconciled to him. We have not been reconciled via works of our own hands or by endless sacrifice or by the commending of ourselves to him. No, when we approach God, we have him who is the God of our peace. We will often look to God and Rightly so, think of God in terms of his power and of his glory and of his might and of his magnitude and majesty. We'll often look to, look to him in terms of fire and power and glory, and all these things are true. But our first need is peace with God. In reality, and as much as we, as much as we don't want to admit it, we are in reality shaky, unsteady people. We like to put up masks and we like to put up things around us and say, no, that's not me. I am a steady rock. But in reality, we are shaky, unsteady folks. Some people might criticize Christians saying, oh, Jesus is just simply your crutch to help you get along. And a, my a young a man who discipled me, uh, my friend Darren, he said, you know, I don't need a crutch because I can't limp into heaven. I need to be carried in on a stretcher. We don't need a crutch. Rather, we need a fortress and one to carry us. To say God of peace is to say with the late Rich Mullins, so hold me, Jesus, because I'm shaken like a leaf. You have been my king. You have been king of my glory. Won't you be my prince of peace? He's the God of peace because he acts by bringing us to peace with himself. Colossians 1, 21 and 22 tells us about that. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, 
He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That is Christ in his body of his flesh by his death has reconciled us to God so that we have peace with God. We were alienated and hostile and we have been brought to peace. And so starting this with the God of peace sets the tone in that this is when we approach God and seek that he might do his work in us and pray for other believers that he might do his work to mold us in the image of Christ, to equip us for every good work. Starts with this, that we are in Christ at peace with God. How often we kneecap ourselves in doing good works because we are so caught up into ourselves that we're spending our time doing basically sanctified new age navel gazing, looking inwards at ourselves and so caught up into how it is so caught up into whether or not we're do where we are good enough that we fail to do good works. You see, being God, us being at peace with God, we are now free from that, those, that cruel and that awful thing. And we are freed now to serve him in the newness of life, not because God needs them, but because our neighbors, our brothers and sisters in Christ need our good works. They need are turning more and more to the likeness of Christ, turning from sin. You see our sanctification here. God did the reconciling. He initiated the work. He brought it to completion in Christ Jesus. So it is in the Christian life. Our sanctification is one in which God is the actor and we are the acted upon. We'll talk about another verse that has reference to that. And there are things in such as Philippians 2, which tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But that's only half the verse. That's only half the passage. There's also a verse 13 that we often ignore. My um, Arminian, and in, the, in terms of the Arminian, those who would say we could lose our salvation like to quote Philippians 2.12 to me sometimes and say, well, read verse 13. We'll talk about that in a moment. just want to whet your appetite for that. And in being brought to peace with God, we've also been brought to peace with one another. Hence the thing earlier in Hebrews 12 to pursue peace with all men. Not only is he spoken of God, who the, our God of peace, who has brought, who, who has, who is our peace, he further reinforces that with the best news that has ever existed in the history of mankind, in world history. That is, his work of bringing us to peace was affected by this thing in the second half of verse twenty, who brought again from the dead our. Lord Jesus. My brothers and sisters, that is the absolute best news that has been ever been heard in the history of mankind. That God brought from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ. 
a simple song from the middle of the 20th century. I think it's the middle of the 20th century, maybe the 70s, which is not the middle, but somewhere between mid-century and the 80s. A little song by Bill Gates that was written. It said, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. This is the absolute best news ever. Someone sent me a text, uh, text or was an email, I don't remember, uh, this week and had a question but opened up with the, opened up, it was a text, opened up with a question. First of all, I have some really good news. Jesus rose from the dead. And then proceeded to ask me a question that is, uh, happens to be on a lot of people's minds right now. So, um, <laughs> But opened up with that. We need to hear that news that Jesus rose from the dead because God's work of bringing us to peace was affected by the redemptive work of Christ. The God of peace, specifically the one we know who rose from the dead, our great shepherd, our Lord Jesus Christ, is the means by which this peace has occurred. He says the great shepherd of the sheep. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But we are Christ's sheep. We are his sheep. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead. Had Jesus died and not risen from the dead, it would have been another unfortunate death. Just another martyr. But Jesus isn't just another martyr. Anytime I hear Christians Say, well, say something, say something to the effect, well, if Jesus had had this, well, then he probably wouldn't have died. And I thought, well, and you would still be in your sin because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all has been taken care of. By his work and his work alone, We are in him. The resurrection brings meaning to everything. It's the best news ever. His resurrection is the demonstration and declaration of who he is in his life and his death for us. Romans 1 says, and he was declared son of God by resurrection from the dead. So that great announcement when that stone rolled away in what was probably in terms of its effect upon the world, the loudest noise that has ever been made. You may have heard of the shot heard round the world. That was the stone heard round the world when it rolled away and Jesus rose from the dead. This great news is something that must be before us if we are to understand what it is to grow in him. We cannot leave behind this glorious news if we are to grow, if we are to be conformed to the image of Christ. As we've said many times before, the gospel is not just for getting people converted. It is for us. We need this good news. So he once again reinforces it. He also tells us something about this Christ who lived and who died and rose from the dead. He refers to him as the great shepherd 
of the sheep. Jesus said, I am the great shepherd. In John chapter 10, I am the great shepherd. If someone is a shepherd, he obviously has sheep. I must ask us, who are the sheep? Is it them over there? No, his sheep are his people. Sometimes referring to concerns about things around us, we might fall into the trap of saying we should not be sheep, rather we should be lions or we should be wolves or things like that. And of course, many times those who are saying we should be lions and wolves are simply following the lead of somebody else in a mass pack of other, other followers. You see, we are sheep. All we like sheep have gone astray. Isaiah 53. Which very recently, I actually understood the words to that, knowing that it came from Isaiah 53. Because when I used to hear the Handel's Messiah sung, I thought it was saying, are we like sheep? But I realized, wait, this is just quoting the scriptures. All we like sheep have gone astray. You see, we are all sheep. Sometime back, I, we showed a, uh, I think it was a video, and maybe I'll have to show it again, where a shepherd has a sheep, and the sheep is, uh, is in a canal, probably an irrigation canal, and the shepherd goes and pulls the sheep out of the irrigation canal and gets it out, and the sheep goes running around, and then makes a beeline and dives headfirst right back into the irrigation canal. All we like sheep have gone astray. That's us. We're not very smart. We need a shepherd. Let us own that term. We are sheep in need of a shepherd. Jesus is that shepherd. He's the good shepherd. Unlike the shepherds in the book of Ezekiel, of Israel, who had failed the people. He's, God promised, I will send. I myself will be their shepherd. And then Jesus says, I am the great shepherd. He is the great shepherd of the sheep. He is our shepherd, our guide, our leader. He finds us. He tends us. He keeps us. He protects us. It is this in relation of him to us that is our hope and the whole basis of our life with and in him. This also means thinking of the fact that we are sheep. We are not the brilliant geniuses that we often think we are. We are not. In and of ourselves, we're but brain-dead sinners in relation to God. And we must always remember and keep that posture of neediness of that shepherd. The 
The shepherd who will never do his people wrong. The shepherd who will always guard his people. Read John chapter 10 and read about Jesus being the great shepherd of his sheep. His sheep hear his voice. He guards it from the, from the false shepherds. He guards us from the wolves. And so he's reinforced this idea of the fact of, first of all, we are at peace with God. This God, God who is the actor because he brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ and brought us into his sheepfold. When I started at what became Good Shepherd in 2007 as one of the elders, one of the questions, uh, the name of the church was Faith Community Church, and there were a million faith community churches in Dallas. So the thought was maybe change the name. So numbers, number were, were a number of them were brought forward. Uh, they were ranging from uh, Savior of the Nations Fellowship to uh, to good to Good Shepherd Church, a Good Shepherd Community Church, and. One of the members taking upon the idea of Good Shepherd said, why don't we call ourselves the Sheepfold of the Good Shepherd? Uh, That's a neat name, but that won't mean anything to people. But that's what we are. We're a Sheepfold of that Good Shepherd. We see what he does. We'll talk about the blood of the eternal covenant in just a moment. Moment, But the main idea that he says here, the main verb in here is equip you. Now may the God of peace equip you for everything good. That's the main idea here. This is the act that that is that is the act we who the acted upon are. That God does for us. What is it that he does is he equips us. What does he equip us for? For everything good that we may do his will. That's what it is doing, equipping us. Again, he does the equipping. May he equip you for every good work. Well, what is that equipping? What does he give to us? I would say that first of all, it is not stating to give you not. He is not saying giving you something that you don't not to give us something that we don't already have. But that which we have. May. Be ever more present and ever more used in us. Second Peter, chapter one, verse three. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of uh, sinful desire. Notice what Peter says here. He says his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. What is it that he has given us in all things? He's given us Jesus Christ. He's given us 
redemption. He has given us his Holy Spirit. He has given us. He has sanctified us. He's brought us into union with him. We have the surety and assurance of glorification. Of standing in that final day with him. Notice it says he has granted to to us all these things through or by these by these precious and great promises, the very promises of God. So he, he equips us with everything good that we may do his will with that which is already ours. Even in Ephesians six, the armor of God, which we talked about several years ago. We look at that sometimes in terms of we go to prayer every day and we say, okay, Lord, now today I'm taking up the shield of faith and I'm taking up the sword. We can look at it that way, a reminder of these things, but in reality, each one element of that armor is an illustration of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the shield of faith, the breastplate of righteousness, that breastplate of the righteousness of Christ, the shield of faith, looking to Christ, all of that has everything to do with what is ours in Christ. So to be equipped to do his will is to live in that which is ours and that God might do his work in us. Part of it is being assured and having the revelation refreshed and renewed of what we have in Christ and his power at work in us. Think of this. When we gather together, one of the things that happens in our service, when we hear the word, when we hear the law, when we hear the gospel, the new covenant of Christ is refreshed and renewed before us. We are renewed in that covenant. The service of the Lord's table is not a is not a <clears throat> a sacrament of entrance but is a sacrament of renewal we have that covenant refreshed and renewed to us but more than that Ephesians 1:15 through 20 offers up a prayer which he says for this reason Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power working toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in his right hand in the heavenly places. Part of that equipping is recognizing how much in dependence we are upon him. Resting in him, receiving from him. He also gives us gifts. The fellowship of the saints. A means that he uses to equip us. And we'll talk about these means that he lays out here in just a moment. 
which what I just said was extraneous to that. But the work that he's doing for us is to equip us for everything good that we may do his will. That is the outworking of our sanctification. That is God is sanctifying his people. And the outworking of that sanctifying work is our growth in holiness. The sum total of obedience and living in thankfulness is here. Doing his will. That is following his law, his Ten Commandments. And so as not to go into too much detail on that, because we've discovered that, I'd commend to you on our website, on the uh, sermons page, you can look up a series called God's Law or the Law of God, one of the two. I can't remember the exact title of the series. And we went through the Ten Commandments. And we see that those Ten Commandments... We see the pinnacle of each one of those, but everything that leads up to them is forbidden. And furthermore, positive commands are required of us. For example, the command to not steal is not just about not taking that which is not ours, but it is also not hoarding everything to ourselves and rather also being generous with that which we have. That is part of not stealing. Because God has commanded such things. <clears throat> Both the negative and the positive aspects of God's law. And again, not just not because God needs that from us, but because number one, our neighbors need those good works. In first Peter it says that, in the, that, that we might live godly and upright lives so that in the day of visitation those who are opposed to the gospel may glorify God in that day. In fact, um, we see that in Second Peter chapter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And furthermore, we need those good works. While those good works are not for us, the foundation of our assurance, they do not, are not the foundation of our assurance. Christ alone is the foundation of our assurance. Those good works confirm for us our assurance. They confirm for us that. And so that's what he, that's the act he's doing. Now we'll talk about the means that he uses for that. First of all, he says, by the blood of the eternal covenant, that he might equip us by the blood of the eternal covenant. The first of how he's doing this work in us, of equipping us, is by that blood of the eternal covenant. What is this blood? It is the blood shed for us at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ at his death. That is the blood of the eternal covenant. That blood which was typified by the sprinkling of the blood on the ark and upon all the various different elements of the temple and upon the people. 
of that blood which testifies of this new covenant. In preparation for the uh, upcoming courses, talking about the various different aspects of what is uh, Reformed theology, looking at covenantal, looking at uh, confessional, Calvinistic, and other as- and the means of grace and uh, the law gospel distinction, looking at the idea of covenants, something that you will see in the making of covenants in the Old Testament scriptures, has to do often with the uh, the slaughter of some animals. For instance, when God in, in uh, Genesis, when he when he affirmed and and cut the covenant with Abraham, he actually had him take a carcass and split it and make a path with it, and the Lord walked through that as part of the ceremony. It involved blood. This blood that was shed by Jesus Christ for us, by which we've been united to God in Christ. It's the entire basis of our life and growth in him. This blood that was shed, as we saw in Hebrews 9 and 10, according to this eternal covenant, which we'll talk about that in just a moment, what that eternal covenant is. But this blood is how God works in us. It is because of this blood that he works in us. A friend of mine once rented a, uh, at a community center in the Dallas area, rented, uh, uh, rented a room for a, uh, a weekly lecture uh, to invite uh, uh, folks to come and hear about Jesus Christ and particularly oriented towards the Hindu population of the area. And one of the questions arose was, what is the significance of the blood? How does the blood cleanse the sins? How does the blood redeem us? How does the blood work in us? And the person said, is the blood magic of some sort? I said, the answer was was simply this. When you see a pool of blood, what is it that you see? What is it that you think? Someone was either seriously injured or somebody died here. That's the significance of blood. He died. And by his death, By his sacrifice on our behalf, he has united us to himself. But not just this blood. Remember, the shedding of blood has to do with with the establishment of a covenant. Here we see the eternal covenant. What is this eternal covenant? Eternal implying that it is a covenant that existed before there was a before. Some might say this is referring to the Abrahamic covenant, but the Abrahamic covenant is not one, is one that began in time. It was cut in time. No. This is a covenant that can only, that that has its roots in eternity. This is the blood of the eternal covenant, which was spoken of in Hebrews 7, referencing Psalm 110. And others. In Psalm 110, we have language with regards to a conversation, so to speak, between two characters. But in Hebrews chapter 7, this was referenced. Verse 
The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment upon the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. What we, we, this opens up immediately with the psalmist recording a conversation. The Lord said to my Lord. The book of Hebrews applies this to Jesus Christ who is the priest after the order of Melchizedek. Here we have what is the basis of the promise that was made in Genesis 3.15, which is the promise of a new covenant, in which he said that, cursing the serpent, saying that you will slither on the ground, and that your seed and her seed, the seed of the woman, will be at odds with one another, but her seed will crush your head. This is the very basis of that. This is the eternal covenant made within the Godhead in eternity by which redemption in time would be brought to the pinnacle of his creation to humanity, to a new race of humans he would create in Christ Jesus. Theologically, we call this the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption in which the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit Spirit covenanted together according to their one will to bring about redemption. The covenant of works, which says, do this and live, shows the need for that redemption. And the covenant of grace promised in Genesis 3.15 and testify to and made uh, clearer through further and further steps throughout the Old Testament revelation, that covenant of grace made that redemption happen. But all this happened because God in, in eternity covenanted within the Godhead to bring this about. The covenant, we call this the covenant of redemption. According to this eternal covenant, being eternal, it cannot be undone cannot be undone it is unshakable so our equipping is rooted in the this unshakable covenant that god has made that was affected by his blood in us and then he says another aspect of this is working in us that which is pleasing in his sight god is at work in his people to work according to his will Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. As I've said, our, when I was with a, worked with a mission agency and we were in a training session and one of the leaders who has some tendencies to believe that um, Christians could possibly lose their salvation looked straight at me. And by the way, if I'm looking at you, it's not because I'm speaking specifically to you. It means you're a convenient eye contact person. <laughs> so... 
just so you know, but this person looked straight at me knowing that I disagreed uh, with her. And she said, Philippians 2.12, for instance, says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not, 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 not so now. So as you re, reboot, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in, as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And we often stop and that person stopped right there, basically saying, see, you have to finish, you have to finish it out. And so I looked right back at the person making eye contact and said, keep reading. For it is God who is at work, work, at work in you, both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Why is it that we are able to work out our salvation with fear and trembling? That is not to work for it, but to labor and to put forward effort and growth and, and repentance and good works of service to one another and to our neighbor because God's at work in us both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. That is, he is at work in us. So our doing good works, it's a matter of the outworking of what God has done as in doing in us. This does not excuse us from exerting effort or seeking to do things, but remembering what is the fount and what is the source of all these things. Salvation sanctification is and this might be this is somewhat controversial not everyone agrees with me and if you disagree with me that's okay we can still be friends but sanctification is monergistic meaning god is the one doing the acting our activity is the outworking of that he's working in us also by means of our of the repentance and the turning and those kinds of things we work on our own salvation with fear and trembling knowing that God is at work in us to will and to work according to his good pleasure what is pleasing in his sight he's working that in us that should be of great comfort to us that in everything that we are dealing with God is working in us even in our constant struggles. Even in the things that we just can't seem to get over. God is working in us. We oftentimes want to measure growth in miles. We want to measure our own growth and sanctification in terms of miles. My brothers and sisters, it's not measured in terms of miles. It's not even measured in terms of feet, nor is it measured in terms of inches. I'm going to go European on you. It's measured in terms of millimeters. Sometimes there are moments where there's more than others. But oftentimes it's very difficult to see the things. But folks on the outside can often see it better than we can. He's also working 
equipping. He also equips us through Jesus Christ. That is, God brings us back to the very basis of this. That he equips us through Jesus Christ. God does all of this through and because of Christ. It brings us back to the source and the basis of all of this. Because we have one who is such a greater than. Such a one who suffered as one of us. Being made lower than the angels according to the human nature. Though eternally in his divine nature being was greater than the angels. He was made lower and suffered for us. Because we, one, we have one who suffered as one of us who is greater than Moses, who led a greater exodus. And because we have one who suffered as one of us, who is greater than all of the high priests, for he is one of an entirely different order, the order of Melchizedek. And he is able to save to the uttermost those who are his. And because we have one who is the greatest sacrifice, who did what no other sacrifice could do and did. Removed our sin and brought us to perfection in him. That is all there for us. He is our advocate. He is the, he, he is the one who along with the Father has sent the Holy Spirit to us. Who is working within us through Jesus Christ. Again. That is all of our basis of Christian life is our relationship to Christ. Through Christ, he equips us. We are oftentimes attracted to things that we can touch and that we can see and that we can hold. we might be tempted to look at the Christian life in a very mechanistic way. That is, the mechanistic way being, if I, if, if, if I do A, B, and C, then D will result. Unfortunately, that is not how things often work. We might do A, B, and C, and all of a sudden, Z results. And we oftentimes want to look at the Christian life as a series of, if, if I could just have three steps that I could have this. Follow step one, step two, and step three, and then I will have all that I need. That's approaching Christian life through the lens of self-help, my brothers and sisters. That's approaching the Christian life primarily through the lens of Law. There's a million preachers out there who will do that. Some who are very, very, very famous. Who will give you, if you follow these six steps, you can have your best life now. And in reality, that is not gospel that's being given. That's just law. It may not even be biblical law, but it is law. It's just do this, do this, do this, do this. And you've got it. 
It is through Christ Jesus that we grow. It is through him. And so he brings us back to the cross. He brings us back to the resurrection. Because we live out of thankfulness. And he is the source of our life. So when we find ourselves struggling with things that we have struggled with, where do we go? We go to Christ Jesus. We go to that cross. We go to that resurrection. We go to the one who is the source. When we may find ourselves in a season where we're finally maybe getting over a few things. We've been seeking God's law. And we're living in and we're seeking to live in thankfulness. Be wary because of the fact that God's law will come crashing again. It will come show us how far we're falling short. And will bring us back to Christ Jesus. It is through Christ. And then we see the purpose of all this. The grand design. I don't have an insight into how all of it works out. But this is the grand design, which is to whom be glory forever and ever. Now the question is, is through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Now may the God of peace, to whom be glory forever and ever. And the answer to that question, of course, I heard someone answer it for me now. The answer to that question is yes. His goodness and work in us shows how great he is. We must avoid the temptation to say that if we look at God working in us and doing good things for us as not a means by which he glorifies himself, we must resist that temptation. God is glorifying himself when he does good things in us. That's his glory. Because it's him demonstrating himself and his goodness and his grace and his purposes. There was a day, maybe you, maybe not you, but there was a day when I made that dichotomy. That is, I separated what need not be separated. And I said, well, God works in me, but that's not him glorifying himself. I need to glorify him. Forgetting that that's, his, that's him glorifying himself. And inasmuch as the Father is glorified, so is the Son and the Holy Spirit. And as much as the Son is glorified, so is the Father and the Holy Spirit. And inasmuch as the Holy Spirit is glorified, so is the Father and the Son. So God is at work in us and it brings him glory. Not just now, but forever and ever. Think of this. We are part of a grand redemption story. And in his redemption, we are part of God's design forever and ever to bring glory to himself. And in so doing, he's bringing glory to himself. So brothers and sisters, let these words, when we think of one another, Maybe you go before the Lord in prayer and you think, how can I pray for folks in our church? Let 
Maybe you keep a list of different people who do different things. They keep a list of each member of the church and pray, pray for a different person each day or try to do it in one fell swoop or have different ways of doing that. Or maybe sometimes, you know, as I've done in the past, of saying, oh, I forgot to do that. I better start praying for people again. Make this our prayer. We don't know how to pray for somebody, a a fellow believer, brother and sister. Pray this for them, for one another. That God would continue to reveal these things to us. So brothers and sisters, we have one who's at work in us, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, who was risen from the dead, who's returning for us who shed the blood of the eternal covenant. And so everything we need for life and godliness is right there for us. Let us hold on to Christ, who is that source. And let us get about the business of doing those good works and keep turning to Christ when we find ourselves getting stuck. Let us pray. Father, We thank you for uh, this great truth that we have seen in the scripture. and We pray that you would work it in us. Mold us to Christ Jesus. uh, Help us to walk in that union we have with him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.